Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana. Let's get started. All right, we're skipping Psalm 142 and going straight to 143, because 142 is somewhere else in my Bible, and I'm not going to go looking for it right now. This one is a prayer in the midst of hopelessness and depression. Our prayer should fit into what we know is consistent with God's character and plans. Fantastic. I'm excited to read this one because I really feel like there's a lot about mental health in the Bible, but not necessarily a lot about mental health uh, discussed in our churches. Verse 1, hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my plea, answer me because you are faithful and righteous. Don't put your servant on trial, for no one is innocent before you. My enemy has chased me. He has knocked me to the ground and forces me to live in darkness like those in the grave. I'm losing all hope. I am paralyzed with fear. I remember the days of old. I ponder all your great works and think about what you have done. I lift my hands to you in prayer. I thirst for you as parched land thirsts for rain. Come quickly, Lord, and answer me, for my depression deepens. Don't turn away from me, or I will die. Let me hear of your unfailing love each morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I give myself to you. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I run to you to hide me. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. For the Lord of your name, O Lord, preserve Sorry, for the glory of your name, O Lord, preserve my life. Because of your faithfulness, bring me out of this distress. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies and destroy my foes, for I am your servant. A comment here on verse 7, which says, Come quickly, Lord, and answer me, for my depression deepens. Don't turn away from me or I will die. David was losing hope, caught in paralyzing fear and deep depression. At times we feel caught in deepening depression and we are unable to pull ourselves out. At those times we can come to the Lord and, like David, express our true feelings. Then we will find help as we remember his works, reach out to him in prayer, trust him, and seek to do his will. And those four things come from this chapter verses 5, 6, 8, and 10. 5 said, I remember the days of old. I ponder all your great works and think about what you have done. And that is remembering his works. Verse 6, I lift my hands to you in prayer. I thirst for you as parched land thirsts for the rain. And that is to pray. And verse 8, let me hear of your unfailing love each morning for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk for I give myself to you. That's trusting him. And the fourth was verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing, and that is to do his will. I feel like reading another psalm, so we're going to read Psalm 144. The theme is rejoicing in God's care, whether in times of prosperity or adversity, blessed are those whose God is the Lord. David was really good about rejoicing in his trust of the Lord and knowing that God was a good God, even when he was facing a whole lot of uh, adversity. 
depression, being chased by demons, trying to be killed, etc. Verse 1. Praise the Lord who is my rock. He trains my hands for war and gives my fingers skill for battle. He is my loving ally and my fortress, my tower of safety, my rescuer. He is my shield and I take refuge in him. He makes the nations submit to me. Some manuscripts read there, my people. He makes my people submit to me. Verse 3, O Lord, what are human beings that you should notice them, mere mortals that you should think about them? For they are like a breath of air, their days are like a passing shadow. Open the heavens, Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so they will billow smoke. Hurl your lightning bolts and scatter your enemies. Shoot your arrows and confuse them. Reach down from heaven and rescue me. Rescue me from deep waters, from the power of my enemies. Their mouths are full of lies. They swear to tell the truth, but they lie instead. Mm. I might have met a few of those in my day. Nine, I will sing a new song to you, O Lord. I will sing your praises with a ten-stringed harp. For you grant victory to kings. You rescued your servant David from the fatal sword. Save me. Rescue me from the power of my enemies. Their mouths are full of lies. They swear to tell the truth, but they lie instead. And there it is again. Verse 8 and 11, their mouths are full of lies. They swear to tell the truth, but they lie instead. Verse 12, may our sons flourish in their youth like well-nurtured plants. May our daughters be like graceful pillars carved to beautify a palace. May our barns be filled with crops of every kind. May the flocks in our fields multiply by the thousands, even tens of thousands. And may our oxen be loaded down with produce. May there be no enemy breaking through our walls, no going into captivity, no cries of alarm in our town squares. Yes, joyful are those who live like this. Joyful indeed are those whose God is the Lord. Okay, so this is really funny as I was reading verse 12. May our sons flourish in their youth like well-nurtured plants. May our daughters be like graceful pillars carved to beautify a palace. <laughs> and in my head, I'm thinking... Jeez, David, is that the best you can come up with for women's value? <laughs> that they beautify a palace? How come the sons flourish, but the women just are just supposed to make everything look pretty? <laughs> Which, I don't know, maybe there is quite a bit of truth to that, given the uh, time period in which this was made. Um... And, and women's role in that time, maybe it's just my, I guess, feminist self coming out. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to miss the whole point of the scripture here, which is that those who follow God are blessed. But David seriously does need to upgrade his idea of what a female being blessed actually looks like because it's definitely more than just beautifying your freaking palace. <laughs> All right, in the book of Proverbs, I'm in chapter 22, verse 26, and we're still at the beginning of this new style of Proverbs, which goes from 22.17 to 24.34, and they call it the sayings of the wise and instead of little single verse wisdom nuggets, this style delivers 
some sort of thought of wisdom over between one to several verses. So we're picking up in 26, uh, verse 26. Don't agree to guarantee another person's debt or put up security for someone else. If you can't pay it, even your bed will be snatched from under you. Ooh, so basically he's saying don't co-sign on someone's loan. Don't be putting up your own bed or livelihood on the chance that someone else is going to come through on their end. Interesting. Verse 28, don't cheat your neighbor by moving the ancient boundary markers set up by previous generations. All right, so don't move those little land markers on your property. <laughs> Verse 29, do you see any truly competent workers? They will serve kings rather than working for ordinary people. Hmm. So it's the um, truly competent workers that get promoted. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Chapter 23, verse 1. While dining with the ruler, pay attention to what is put before you. If you are a big eater, put a knife to your throat. Don't desire all the delicacies, for he might be tr trying to trick you. The comment on this one says, The point of this proverb is to be careful when eating with an important or influential person because that individual may be trying to influence or bribe you. Unwary meetings over meals can lead to undermined convictions. No good will come from such meals. Verse 4, Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. In the blink of an eye, wealth disappears, for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle. The comment on this one says, we've all heard of people who've won millions of dollars and then lost everything. Even the average person can spend an inheritance or a paycheck with lightning speed and have little to show for it. Don't spend your time chasing fleeting earthly treasures. Instead, store up treasures in heaven for such treasures will never be lost. I think that's kind of interesting because I mentioned the lottery there, sort of. Uh, but yeah. Whether inheritance or settlement or lottery or a bonus paycheck, whatever. I think it's not uncommon for people to spend that super quick on that item they've been wanting forever. It might be that big TV or new tool or motorized whatever and then, of course, you know, the next year there's a new version or something when it breaks. Verse 6. Don't eat with people who are stingy. Don't desire their delicacies. They're always thinking about how much it costs. Eat and drink, they say, but they don't mean it. You will throw up what little you've eaten and your compliments will be wasted. <laughs> the comment here says, in graphic language, the writer warns us not to envy the lifestyles of those who have become rich by being stingy and miserly and not try to gain their favor by fawning over them. Their quote-unquote friendship is phony. They will just use you for their own gain. Yeah, probably. Verse 9, don't waste your breath on fools for they will despise the wisest advice. Verse 10, don't cheat your neighbor by moving the ancient boundary markers. There it is again. Don't take the land of defenseless orphans, 
for the Redeemer is strong. He himself will bring their charges against you. And oh, look at this. We see a little bit of Jesus in the book of Proverbs. A, in verse 10, he says, don't take the land of the defenseless orphans. Jesus was very much a champion of orphans and widows and poor. And verse 11 says, for their Redeemer, and this has an asterisk, um, oh, it might just be a little our Redeemer, is strong. He himself will bring their charges against you. And isn't this exactly what Jesus did in the, in the New Testament and continues to do for us? He redeems those who are suffering, who are downtrodden. He champions them. He tells people to look out for them. He helps people to look out for them. And when one sheep is lost, he fights to bring it back. Testament, we are in the book of First Thessalonians. Last time we read chapter one and revisited Paul's experience when he first went to Thessalonica. He was preaching. A few people believed, some did not. They formed a mob. Jason, poor guy, kind of got the brunt of the mob's rage. But in other words, Paul and Silas had to leave. But the believers who lived in Thessalonica stayed strong, continued in their faith. They were fully convinced that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And they continued to share that news and developed somewhat of a reputation, among other areas. And that brings us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is in Paul's letter back to the people, the believers in Thessalonica. And he's writing this while he is in Corinth. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that, your that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know, and God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you night and day? We toiled to earn a living. 
so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach. Sorry. So we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live lives in a way that God would consider worthy, for he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Therefore, we never stop think- thanking God that when you received this his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which, of course, it is, and this word continues to work in you who believe. And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea who, because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. For some of the Jews killed the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us, too. They fail to please God and work against all humanity as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins, but the anger of God has caught up with them at last. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. After all, what gives us hope and joy, and what will be our proud reward and crown when we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. Finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news of Christ. We sent him to strengthen you, to encourage you in the faith, and to keep you from being shaken by the troubles you were going through. But you know that we were destined for such troubles. Even while we were with you, we warned you that troubles would soon come, and they did, as you all know. That is why, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that our work had been useless. But now Timothy has just returned, bringing us this good news about your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit with joy and that you wanted to see us as much as we wanted to see you. So we have been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith. It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. How we thank God for you. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Night and day, we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again, to fill the gaps in your faith. May God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow just as our love for you overflows. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Amen. And that finished out 1 Thessalonians chapters 2 and 3. Okay, so there's a lot of comments on what I just read, and I'm not going to read all of them because they're not all that interesting. 
But one that is, is on verse 3 of chapter 2. Right at the very beginning, he opens up and says, So you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. Which seems a bit out of left field because we don't know all the juicy details of what was going on in Thessalonica at the time. We really have had very little to read at this point. The comment here says, This pointed statement may be a response to accusations from the Jewish leaders who had stirred up the crowds from the Acts chapter 17 section. Paul did not seek money, fame, or popularity by sharing the good news. He demonstrated the sincerity of his motives by showing that he and Silas had suffered for the sharing of the good news in Philippi. People, became, uh, people become involved in ministry for a variety of reasons, not all of them good or pure. When their bad motives are exposed, all of Christ's work suffers. So, it sounds like basically it's kind of speculation why he put that in there, but probably the Jews who had riled up the mob had had something to do with that. After verse 3, where he said, we weren't preaching with deceit or impure motives. He goes on to say, For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you, or we were like mothers, like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. The comment here says, In trying to persuade people, we may be tempted to alter our position just enough to make our message more palatable or to use flattery or praise. Paul, as stated there, never changed his message to make it more acceptable. But he did tailor his methods to each audience. Although our presentation must be altered to be appropriate to the situation, the truth of the good news must never be compromised. And that's kind of what Paul was saying there. We weren't trying to people please. We weren't trying to get you to think well of us. We weren't trying to con you. We genuinely loved you. We genuinely just wanted to share the good news with you. And he does alter his delivery a little bit to fit the culture of where he's preaching. But it always ties back to the same message. Christ is the Messiah. All the prophets that we've been studying our whole lives lead up to the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. Like that's his message, message consistently. Which kind of makes me think a lot about what is uh, quote-unquote preached in my line of work in like addiction recovery, counseling, behavioral health, human services, etc. There's this thing called culturally competent care, which doesn't mean that the helping professional needs to be an expert on all cultures other than their own, because that's obviously impossible, but to be sensitive to the fact that whoever is in front of them has a different culture than theirs. But the key message of help and hope never changes. The key message of you're not alone. You can do this. 
there is help to help you overcome. There are resources to help with the problems and suffering you're dealing with. But how that expresses itself in each person's life varies person to person, life to life, and, and a lot by a person's culture. So I think it's kind of cool that we actually see Paul modeling that way back in biblical times. Just to summarize another comment, his statement that he had a right to make demands of the, the believers. So Paul was a tent maker. He supported himself through his tent making business, but because he was teaching people as a teacher, he could have charged essentially. But that becomes part of his testimony to his authenticity. I'm not doing this for the money. I supported myself. I taught you for free. And I taught you because this message is worth sharing. That's it. You know, now that I'm thinking about that, that really does make sense based on Paul's background. Uh, he was a Jewish leader back in his days of persecuting Christians. He was in a position of religious authority, basically before he said, oh gosh, what have I done? <laughs> Jesus is the real deal and completely changed his whole life mission. You know, it's so funny. I've read the Bible cover to cover at least half a dozen times over the years. And every time, you know, you either, I guess I relearn stuff or just understanding of people's characters gets deeper. And what's kind of nice, nice about this chronological Bible is it's putting different things together that I would not have been reading back to back just in the standard biblical canon order. And I think that was the first way I ever read the Bible cover to cover. It was in a whole chronological version, which was the best thing I ever did. But then ever since, it was just kind of the standard canon order. And this is the first time I've gone back to a different chronological order because there is some flexibility in there. It's kind of neat. All right, comment on verse 14. And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea, who, because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. Just as the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were persecuted by other Jews, the Gentile Christians in Thessalonica were persecuted by their fellow Gentiles. Persecution is discouraging, especially when it comes from your own people. When you take a stand for Christ, you may face opposition, disapproval, and ridicule from your neighbors, friends, and even family members. And I might add, and it'll come in the form of uh, a conversation or a message on social media. <laughs> I, think, I think these days, a lot of the persecution people experience is on their social media pages. Maybe all the more reason to just shut the things off. <laughs> okay, so here's something interesting. It's interesting because it's 
a little bit of a revelation into the difference of the belief, the faith of biblical believers versus the faith of today's generation based on the different historical context. All right. So this is on verse 15. For some of the Jews killed the prophets and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They failed to please God and work against all humanity. And I think I said something in the last episode about how believers at that time were under the impression, and really for good reason, that Jesus would return in their lifetime. So that ties into this comment. Having believed the good news and accepted and accepted new life in Christ. Apparently, many Thessalonians thought that they would be protected from death until Christ returned. Then, when believers began to die under persecution, some Thessalonian Christians started to question their faith. Many of Paul's comments throughout this letter were addressed to these people as he explained what happens when believers die. See 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, which we will get to next time. So yeah, that's kind of interesting. And it makes sense given the time. But nobody today believes that they are protected from death because they believe in Christ because it's been thousands of years and lots of people have died since he, <laughs> since he was on earth. So anyway, that's just interesting. All right, next interesting historical tidbit here. On verse 15 and 16, for some of the Jews killed the prophets and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They fail to please God and work against all humanity as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins, but the anger of God has caught up with them at last. Okay, so why were they doing that? Why were so many Jews opposed to Christianity? Which... I remember as a child really wondering that, like, why wouldn't they be happy? <laughs> They've been waiting for the Messiah their entire lives for generations and generations. Their whole religion revolves around the coming of the Messiah. He comes. Why are they not believing that it's him when all of these prophecies are being fulfilled in front of their faces, when all these miracles are being done in front of their faces. Like, why are they so resistant to this when Jesus did everything he could to make it obvious, <laughs> right? So anyway, so it says, why were so many Jews opposed to Christianity? And it goes through four reasons. Number one, Although the Jewish religion had been declared legal by the Roman government, it still had a tenuous relationship with the government. At this time, Christianity was viewed as a sect of Judaism. The Jews were afraid that reprisals leveled against the Christians might be expanded to include them. So they're saying these, they're recognizing Christians are kind of stirring the pot and we don't want the backlash. Number two, the Jewish leaders thought Jesus was a false prophet and they didn't want his teachings to spread. So that's kind of the obvious answer is, well, they just didn't believe it. They just didn't really believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Therefore, if he's not the Messiah, but he's claiming to be, he's a false prophet. And they would, of course, their, their faith would require them to oppose him at all costs for that. 
Number three, the leaders feared that if many Jews were drawn away, their own political position might be weakened. Of course, people not following them anymore, going to follow someone else, dividing their political party. That makes sense. And number four, Jews were proud of their special status as God's chosen people and resented the fact that Gentiles could be full members within the Christian church. So there's that kind of group culture, group think kind of bias at, at play there. We are God's chosen people. And of course, we already read a little bit of beef that Peter and Paul had there. Peter was kind of people pleasing the Jews and Paul's like, dude, Gentiles are are saved too and no they don't have to become Jews to follow Christ, right? We read that before. So yeah, it was complicated. Alright, so Satan was mentioned in verse 18. He says, we wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. So, this is about that. And apparently, there's not a whole lot of explanation on that. Just speculation here. Um, Satan is real. He is called the god of this world, see 2 Corinthians 4.4, and the commander of the powers of the unseen world, Ephesians 2.2. We don't know exactly what hindered Paul from returning to Thessalonica. Opposition, illness, travel complications, or a direct attack by Satan. Don't really know. But Paul clearly pinned it on him, right? But Satan worked in some way to keep him away. Many of the difficulties that prevent us from accomplishing God's work can be attributed to Satan. So we don't actually know what happened or, you know, what is it that convinced Paul this is Satan and not just circumstance or the other people I'm working with or what is it that prevented him we don't know all right chapter 3 verse 4 says even while we were with you we were war uh, we warned you that troubles would soon come and they did as you well know some people turn to God with the hope of escaping suffering on earth, but God doesn't promise that. Instead, he gives us power to grow through our sufferings. The Christian life involves obedience to Christ despite temptations and hardships. And this is a really good example of why I personally have a real issue with the whole health and wealth preaching. Um, making you a believer, you know, believing in Christ will not give you good health or money. Nothing ever promises that. That is so anti-biblical. And those who are preaching that, it tends to be that person who ends up being the wealthy one, not the people that they're teaching to. So I have a problem with that on so many different levels. What the Bible actually says is if you believe Christ, it will not go well for you. <laughs> You will probably suffer, be persecuted, be embarrassed, be put down, lose your money, lose your stuff, lose your home, lose your family. Like the list goes on and on of all the bad things that might actually happen to you because you choose to believe in Jesus. So these people saying, oh no, you'll never get sick and you don't need to get vaccines and you don't need to see a doctor and you'll have all this money. And, and because you have all this money, you should give more to me. God. 
<laughs> just it just it it kind of makes me want to throw up just a little bit and that's kind of the last of the interesting comments on this section but it makes me think you know like how does this jive with what David wrote in his psalm about those believing in God being blessed and I think you can suffer and be persecuted for your faith and be blessed by God for your faith at the same time those are not mutually exclusive Right, but we kind of have to adjust our thinking of what exactly do blessings look like and what exactly does suffering look like. A person could suffer in their faith being uh, ridiculed for it and also be blessed by God in really quality relationships with other people who don't ridicule them for their faith blessed in a sense of peace even when they're facing hardship our family was incredibly blessed through the period through periods of time of loss in some of the hardest emotionally taxing times God still blessed us with love and support from family and friends and even some practical things like uh, my cousin being able to get their plane ticket changed to get up for the funeral and things like that. You can suffer and be blessed at the same time. If we're not so focused on blessings being monetary and suffering being like biblical style persecution, which at least in the U.S., doesn't particularly happen that often. Though still does in some areas of the world. And on that note, that's about it for today. So these scriptures today made me think of that song, Reckless Love, by Corey Asbury. So I thought I'd add the poem lyrics onto this episode. No, again, I'm not singing it. You can, you can listen to it on Spotify if you want. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the ninety-nine. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. When I was your foe, you, your, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me, but you have been so, so kind to me. And oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the ninety-nine. And I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. 
Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God.